Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We're pricing out extremes. We're pricing yeah. out a recession. I don't think we're pricing in an acceleration of growth, and that distinction maybe exactly. explains that huge sentiment shift yes. over the last couple of weeks. I want to bring in Dan Arm, BNP Paribas, Chief US Economist and Head of Markets 360 North America. Good morning to you, Dan. Good morning. Let's talk about it, shall we? We've had a massive sentiment shift in global markets over the last couple of months. We've had the bears over the weekend finally starting to capitulate. What's your message at the moment? So I don't think we're out of the woods uh, here. Um, uh, as uh, as Tom just mentioned, uh, uh, both uh, uh, the various uh, Fed nowcasts and our own nowcasts are suggesting that this quarter is going to shape up to be a pretty ugly one. Uh, and it's my view uh, that uh, the weakness that we're going to see this quarter is actually going to spill over into next How does it well. spill over? Because that's the distinction of the bulls and the bears here on GDP growth is the spillover effect. How does it spill over into the next quarter? Um, it basically, the consumer consumer um, is, while it's going to be resilient, it cannot remain, remain immune uh, from this big uh, a synchronized global manufacturing downturn. We saw this back in 2015-16, where we saw two quarters of very subpar growth. Uh, I think we're going to see it again. What about export-import dynamics? Um, so yeah, um, uh, with uh, uh, ex-U.S. global growth, uh, uh, the weakest we have seen in, in five years, uh, um, uh, we think that exports are going to get affected. And, and, and John, this is killing. Forget about import and trade war, export of America product. What do you export to? You know, that, that just that uh, partial differential into next year. So what does it mean for the Fed view? I'm going to quote your research. In our view, Fed policy will shift from mid-cycle adjustment to an extended but patient easing cycle of 150 basis points. Put some meat on those bones. What does that mean? So uh, precisely what that means is we see another round uh, um, of uh, insurance cuts sort of coming, something along the lines of 50 to 75 basis points once the Fed realizes uh, uh, that it's not going to be just one quarter, isolated quarter of weakness, uh, but uh, again, spilling over next year. When do we stop calling them insurance cuts when we're back down to zero? I have to wonder, you know, at this point, we're entering into accommodative. Major central banks increase their balance sheets by the most... uh, Uh, in October since December. Why isn't that going to fuel perhaps a bull case? So I think it actually is supporting sentiment right now, but uh, we have to remember that monetary policy works with a lag. Uh, and uh, uh, while I think the markets are very happy uh, that uh, the previous sort of cycle of insurance cuts has been successful in reducing the downside risk of a recession, uh, uh, we think that, uh, again, the weakness that's spilling over into services, into consumers, uh, will mean that uh, the Fed is going to have to uh, uh, enter another um, short and, and patient, yes, uh, but still nevertheless another easing cycle. Well, is it back to Stan Fisher's ultra-accommodative? Because a chart would suggest so if you get the number of rate cuts you're talking about. Right, and that's exactly the, the context that we're working here. We are over-reliant upon central banks uh, to do everything, um, uh, and every single time the markets Okay, wobbles, so then uh, to, to, what was uh, that? Well, well, this is important. What was the headline last week? One of the Fed speakers, maybe it was Powell, you were doing it, John, and one headline talked about asset bubbles. You know, I, they didn't use that language, but is, is Dow 28,000 an asset bubble? 
I think we'll know in hindsight whether indeed it is a bubble or not. Um, I do think that there is some underlying strengths within trend growth in the economy uh, that suggests that you know, maybe uh, in the long term uh, these uh, uh, equity levels are justified. Uh, but certainly in the shorter term data, I sort of see a lot of people, uh, you know, breathing sighs of relief uh, <gasps> that the trade deal uh, is almost there. That's Tom and, every uh, I'm, <laughs> and, and That's I'm uh, frankly uh, sort of yeah. scratching my head here, saying. You're scratching your head. I'm in the triple leverage all cash. Did you see how he answered that question? That was like BMP message With very deep pause. Pause. He's got his PR looking over. We'll know. We'll know in the future. (laughs) Just making sure he doesn't get in trouble. If we crater, we'll know in the future. (laughs) Can I get to the take from UBS? Okay, UBS are one of the banks, one of the groups over the last couple of weeks, over the last week that has raised their global equity upgrade. They've lifted things. So Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, and UBS. This is the UBS take, and I want you to pick out the bit that you would push back hardest on. UBS CIO Mark Hayfley saying the following. We upgrade on one, the US-China trade negotiations have made progress. Two, central bank accommodation has increased. Three, earnings expectations have fallen. And four, there are tentative signs of economic stabilization. Of those four points, what are you pushing back on the most at the moment? Uh, Probably number one and number four. Um, I think that uh, first on the U.S.-China trade talks, yes, uh, uh, the prognosis looks reasonably good for there to be a phase one deal. But that's because phase one contained all of the easy stuff uh, and all of the harder stuff has been kicked off uh, to to phase two. And uh, speaking with my former colleagues, uh, both at State and at USTR, um, uh, I don't don't see a reason why we should be any more confident about a phase two uh, than we were on the comprehensive deal six months earlier. What are they saying to you? How how that ended. Those conversations with your former colleagues, what are they saying? So they're saying um, that, uh, uh, you know, of course, you know, the boilerplate language uh, that, uh, you know, uh, negotiations continue and they can't uh, specify any any details. But they did emphasize how important it was, both to Ambassador Lighthizer and to the U.S. general negotiating stance, uh, that there be an enforcement mechanism uh, to ensure that the commitments that the Chinese make uh, are indeed actually executed. Um, And that, remember, had uh, tripped up the deal before. Um, again, I don't see why we should be more optimistic. So these now. are officials working in the administration right now that are essentially telling you that if we don't have an enforcement mechanism, we don't have a deal. That's right. Um, and, and Ambassador Lighthizer has been very public about that, both in testimony before Congress um, as well as in general. Um, it's understandable um, oh. uh, given the context, uh, but that sort of means that they're going to really have to wrestle out uh, this very difficult sort of aspect to the negotiations uh, uh, before we can really see an end uh, to U.S.-China mm-hmm. trade policy uncertainty. And that is not including all the other aspects around geopolitics, around technology, around uh, you know Hong Kong, around Xinjiang, uh, that is also heating up the temperature. Dr. Ron, thank you so much. Daniel On with BNP Paribas uh, this morning. The interview of the day on Aramco, and you can do this with Ellen Wald with the Atlantic Council Global Energy Center, her book, Saudi Inc., is definitive. I take it back to Robert Lacey and his book on the Kingdom of Saud of years ago. Saudi Inc. is just absolutely superb. Alan, this deal is not working out. The headline this morning, they're going to cancel the London Roadshow. They're not going to do a New York Roadshow. What do institutions know that the retail in Saudi 
having this forced down their throats don't know? What do we know where we're saying we're not doing this transaction? Well, I think that the institutions, at least outside Saudi Arabia, know that this is a an IPO that's being forced for, uh, in many ways, political reasons, and that it's a company that's controlled by an absolute monarch who may not, in fact, probably will not, given its history, make decisions about the company that are in the best interests of the company. And these institutional uh, investors, these foreign funds, know that if they're invested in this, they will have absolutely no legal recourse uh, when when the government decides to use the company for its own own purposes. You know, when Alibaba came out, I remember the uproar over Grand Cayman Island accounting. Um, your epilogue is for their sons. Do the sons of the Kingdom of Saud have legit accounting for Aramco? Or can you suggest that we actually don't even know what the balance sheet is? I think the balance sheet is probably, pre- I think that the accounting is probably pretty solid going here. I mean, we, we, we knew going into this that Saudi Aramco was the most profitable company in the world. We didn't know quite how much. I think the accounting is pretty solid. It's really the decision-making that's the issue. And the biggest question is, the reason that Saudi Aramco has been so profitable over the years is precisely because the sons of Abdulaziz Ibn Saud left the company alone. They let it do its thing. They let the the oil men make the best decisions for the long-term profitability of the company, and that helped the country. Now, that's not necessarily the case. In fact, the signs are increasingly clear that this isn't going to be the case and that really what this uh, next generation of sons, the grandsons, want to do is they want to gut the company for their own purposes. And that isn't a good sign for investors who want to make money on this. Ellen, why is Aramco going ahead with this IPO, if we can call it that, to raise $25 billion? They targeted $100 billion. They're getting it from their local investors with leveraged cash, apparently. Why not just call it a day and and do it another time? Uh, Yeah, and and I really, I've, I've been saying that they should do this, particularly after the attacks on, on Abkik and Khoreis. I said, you know, this is a really good opportunity to take a step back, take a breather, and reevaluate the merits of this because it's not going to bring in the kind of foreign cash they were looking for. And so what the IPO has essentially become is a transfer of wealth from Saudi financial institutions, uh, wealthy Saudis, Saudi businesses, and Saudi just just general Saudi citizens, it's become a transfer of wealth from them to the government. And that's going to tie up a lot of capital in this IPO that could be used for all sorts of other actual economic diversification in the country. So, Ellen, can we call this Saudi Arabia's version of a billionaire's wealth tax? Hmm. Um, except that it's not all for billionaires. You've also got regular Saudis who are taking out mortgages on their homes. They're selling other stocks. They're they're borrowing money to invest in this. So it's not it's not just a billionaire wealth tax. It's it's basically a, a tax. Now they will get equity in this company, but it's going to be locked up for at least six months, and that's going to mean there's very little liquidity after the shares start trading, and um, it could it, we could see 
the creation of a bubble. And then if other investors say they do end up getting these Russian or Chinese cornerstone investors, those people might start selling within the six months, whereas regular Saudis can't or are incentivized not to. And we could find that after an initial bump up in price, it could drop like a stone. Could this be a threat to social stability, Alan? Just explore that a little bit further. Yeah, that's that's the next question to ask is what's going to happen with political and social stability in Saudi Arabia, because this IPO was promised to them, what politically was promised to them as um, both something good for them, good for the economy, good for their their future prospects. And if that doesn't pan out, there could be issues, especially in a region that is now basically on fire with uh, with protesters who are protesting the lack of economic opportunity. And this could really bring this to the fore. Saudi Arabia has traditionally been, you know, very, very stable. People have really not been interested in protesting. I mean, I think in, during the Arab Spring, they had a, a protest with maybe five protesters. But so- when you're talking about people's livelihoods, Different, different issues arise, and, and we could definitely see some social instability as a result. What does Aramco do with the $25 billion? Well, Aramco's not actually getting the $25 billion, which is, which, which is the irony of it all. Aramco doesn't need $25 billion. They're spending $40 billion on, on CapEx. You know, they, they don't need this money. It's the Saudi government that's getting it. Uh, and what, what is it that they think they're going to do with $25 billion? I don't think this is really about the $25 billion. This is about the fact that they want to sell shares, more shares of Aramco, put more shares on the market later to generate cash when they need it for their interesting and somewhat bizarre uh, project, mega projects. And so it's not necessarily about the $25 billion they're going to get now. It's about the shares that they're going to sell and the money they hope to make on it later. SoftBank gets on the phone straight after the IPO, gives them a call, said you've got some spare money. Can we invest it for you? Is that where this is going, Tom? Well, then no, I think it's very, Alan, I think that's a really important point, particularly after the zaniness of SoftBank and their combo with Yahoo Japan, and I think it's called Live Z Company, whatever, this weekend. I mean, this, this, this Aramco, which was so prestigious when we were kids, like to have a job with Aramco was this huge deal, et cetera, to consult to them, whatever. I, I mean, do they understand there's a rule book out there institutionally you have to go by? Do you have any research within Saudi Inc. that they understand their rules of the road in bringing a transaction public? Well, this is a really good question. And uh, it seems that Aramco... Ramco was pretty well well versed in these issues. I mean, they they got their books in order. It's really, I, I think, from from what I hear from from yeah. sources in, inside, is that the political, the the monarchy who's pushing this, whose idea this was, it was not getting good advice. Was being advised by people who are not specialists or experts in IPOs, and that that's yeah. one of the reasons that it really was bungled and kind of done in a very yeah. backwards, non-traditional way that, that frankly, foreign investors yeah. really aren't interested in. This could have been great. This company is great. This IPO could have been great had they had they done right. it the right way. Alan Wald, thank you so much. Alan, thank I can't you. say enough. Saudi Inc., the Arabian Kingdom's pursuit of oil. I'm just extraordinary, extraordinary uh, book.
Hero, have you ever been to the O O two out in Greenwich? To I a have. Concert? Yeah. What have you seen? There? I actually went there for the Olympics in okay. 2012. And they do like big concerts and all that. The it's Luminaires very cool. are there and a bit out there is the Intercontinental, which is where they held this conference today, where the, the elite meet to greet and the candidates show up. Labour Party's Jeremy Corbyn was over there. He caught up yeah. with Bloomberg's Anna Edwards uh, in London in the last hour or so. I'm pleased to say that Anna Edwards joined us on the phone to talk about that interview. Anna, great to have you with us on the program. So let's discuss it. Jeremy Corbyn, according to the polls over the weekend, falling further behind the Conservative Party led by Boris Johnson. What did he say about closing that gap? Yeah, he says he can close the gap. He says he's enjoying trying to close that gap, and that's best done by getting out there and campaigning, uh, which is no small feat when it's getting colder and darker and wetter the closer we get to uh, election on December the 12th here in the UK. Uh, So just to to catch up on the polling, there were three over the weekend that gave the Conservative Party and Boris Johnson a double-digit percentage point lead over Jeremy Corbyn, although the Labour Party are also always quick to... To, to remind us how much damage they did to Theresa May's lead back in 2017. Are there parallels here, Anna, before, between now and 2017 and the gap, the distance between the two parties going to, into the election? Well, the similarity is that we started with a situation where the Conservative Party had a big lead, and that's why both leaders, Theresa May and Boris Johnson, feel that they can take these gambles of getting us into early election situations. But that's maybe where the parallels end. I mean, Boris Johnson is a very different yeah. campaigner. Certainly the Conservative Party believe Boris Johnson is a very different campaigner, and he certainly hasn't been losing right. uh, up to this point. Anna, you're our best student of this. Okay, it's CBI. Everybody trots up to, you know, get the corporate message and all that, and they're preaching to the, the business community. Is the nation transfixed by this election? I mean, compared to all the other elections you've covered, how does this one mm. line up so far? Yeah, there's been a lot of talk about how this has, this campaign hasn't really taken off yet. And to be honest with you, after the intensity and the drama around Brexit and the deadline at the end of October, it almost felt like the country needed to take a break <laughs> at the beginning of November. So things have had a slow start. But last week with the announcement that we got of the uh, intention to provide free broadband from the Labour Party, that's something that did capture the, the, the country's imagination, if you like, it did start. We also haven't had the manifestos yet. We wait till Thursday to get the Labour Party manifesto. This. And the Tory manifesto is coming in sort of drips and drabs, if you like. It's slowly being released. I think they're trying to maximise media coverage. Uh, so, yeah, things are slow. Well, Brexit is one issue, and it's definitely dominated the headlines, but the spending plan that Jeremy Corbyn put out, uh, possibly having a bigger effect on confidence, how is that reading, uh, and what did he have to say about that? Yeah, I mean, he, he refers you back to the extent of their spending pledges and the numbers that they put out there. He says that's very transparent. Everybody can see what they plan, and he says that we're going to see a scale of investment never seen before in the UK, if, of course, he's Prime Minister. The other thing to bear in mind is even if he does manage to somehow become against the polling evidence, become Prime Minister, that might have to be in some sort of confidence and supply arrangement with other parties who have their own criteria around spending and their own uh, uh, manifesto pledges. So it isn't necessarily as simple as taking uh, his manifesto and turning that into, into a reality if he is in Downing Street. But certainly the guilt markets have all been pretty transfixed uh, by this idea that whoever we get as 
prime minister, we're going to end up with a lot more fiscal stimulus in the UK, which is a real about face from over the last 10 years or so, talking about austerity, 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 and belt tightening and the virtue of all of that. And now we do seem to be in a very different era. Anna, let's wrap things up by talking about monetary policy, shall we? Governor Carney is set to leave at the start of 2020. Did you speak to Mr Corbyn about the future of the Bank of England? I did. And I said, you know, you'll have a lot to decide if you are prime minister on on, uh, December the 13th. You'll have a lot to decide. But one of the things will be whether you ask Mark Carney to stay for another term. Remember, he's supposed to leave on the 31st of January. And he said uh, all he could tell me was that they have a very good relationship, the Labour Party, with Mark Carney. I asked him again and he told me again. All I can say is we have a very good relationship, as if that did perhaps hold some deeper meaning. Yeah. You'll have to judge for yourself when you see the exchange. He then did say he's made no commitment to anybody post-December the 12th. Very good. Anna Edwards, thank you so much on the campaign trail. Thanks, course, Anna. Driving forward our television coverage in the London early morning and her wonderful work on the politics of Europe and the United Kingdom. Uh, right now, Julia Coronado joins us from Macro Policy Perspectives. Julia, we don't usually talk to you about gyrations of the market across a three-minute span, but we'll go there this morning. Um, Julia, I'm kidding, folks. Uh, we're getting a huge disparity between a Fed patient and pausing and others really stepping up a slower GDP and a Fed that will still remain active, even towards ultra-accommodative. How do you fit into that mix? Well, I think the Fed is is justified in taking uh, a pause right now. It was a little surprising how strongly they signaled that they're on hold. I think that we'll we'll see in the minutes this week that reflects some dissension on the committee, some divergence of views. But the data do show some stabilization. I think I agree that the optimism has gone a little far to hang a lot on these first round trade talks, which are really in substance pretty cosmetic. Uh, and, and the global growth picture, sure, we might be stabilizing, but that's far from saying that we're heading into a new renewal of growth. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty about the growth outlook. I was struck by a Bloomberg Economics projection about the effects of the uh, trade wars on the U.S. and the global economy. The biggest drag comes from the uncertainty. Does that go mm-hmm. away, even if we get a trade truce? No. Yeah, I think you're right. That, that's, that's exactly where, where we need to focus right now because we see it in the investment data, right? There's a, there's a divergence between the market sentiment that has really taken signal from every sort of hint of progress in the, in the phase one trade talks and what actual businesses are dealing with on the ground, which is a tremendous amount of uncertainty that they're ju- judging to be sort of a semi-permanent feature of the landscape that they're going to have to reorganize global supply chains, they're going to have to manage these political risks. And that's not something that's, you know, conducive to productivity and profitability. So I think that there is a divergence between what's happening on the ground and the mood swings in the market. Julia, just to get the audience on top of the latest reporting uh, worldwide around the trade story, this is coming from the Beijing bureau chief over at CNBC. I quote her on Twitter at the moment, the mood in Beijing about trade and the deal is pessimistic, a government source tells me China troubled after the president said no tariff rollback. And she goes on to explain just a little bit more. Just how important is tariff rollback to ultimately get some kind of truce between the United States and China, Julia? 
I mean, to be honest, it's hard for me to see a very meaningful and enduring truth because the issues that divide the U.S. and China are not easily resolved. So again, this phase one promised to be mainly cosmetic, um, and it's hard for me even to see how the Trump administration is going to really concede to rolling back existing tariffs and giving up that leverage, and how Beijing is going to give up on any kind of meaningful assurances on intellectual property. So I really don't see how we can make a meaningful progress that eliminates, that really lifts some of this uncertainty. What does your GDP call 12 months forward? Well, I think we've got, well, so we've got trend growth in, in the U.S. So we're right now tracking below trend on Q4. Mm-hmm. We're around one and a quarter percent, wow. reflecting some of the drag from on investment. Right. Um, but in, and we've got trend growth in, in 2020. Now that's presuming that some of this monetary accommodation is able to yeah. offset the uncertainty tax. Right. And the rubber really hits the road with the, with the global stabilization that Jonathan alluded to yeah. at, the, at the top of the broadcast. Julie, over the weekend with a beverage in my hand, somebody asked me if we have 1% GDP growth, Ali, you're one and a quarter percent. What portion of America's in recession? I mean, if it's not distributed equally, yeah. What percentage of Americans are enjoying recession with a sub 2% GDP statistic? The answer is a lot. Well, yeah, I mean, I think what we've seen, the, the, the good thing that we've seen is the resiliency in the labor market and even the, the sort of lower tier of the wage earners really enjoying some wage gains in a strong job market. And that's held up despite what has been a recession in the manufacturing sector. So I think if you are in the manufacturing sector, you are seeing layoffs, you are seeing Mm -hmm. um, a tougher environment. But if you're in the service sector, things have still been pretty good. And that resiliency has been very encouraging. Julia, thank you so much. Julia Coronado, Macro Policy uh, Perspectives this morning. Paul, this is great. It's always good to talk precious metals. I mean, all that's going on there. But particularly if they can gaze at the two-carat special from Tiffany's and as a gemologist (laughs) tell you if you did okay. How often do we talk to somebody on the cell side that's an actually like big-time gemologist? I don't know. this. I mean, our next guest covers absolutely everything. FX, commodities, metals, uh, you name it. She covers it. Georgette Bollet, uh, senior FX and precious metal strategist at ABN AMRO, joining us on the phone from Amsterdam, I believe. Georgette, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Let's start with the metals. Uh, you know, just looking, you know, at gold, um, you know, a lot of people it's just not sure what to do with gold here. What is your thought? Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, the gold market is uh, looking a bit for direction, and the thing as well is is that we are currently close to yeah, an important support, and that's around 1450. Um, we have been much higher, um, and the thing now in the gold market is that investors are very, very long gold. They hold already gold uh, from speculators to other investors and expecting higher prices um, and yeah, they still hope to see it further this year. The only thing is, is that we had some here and there some news, supportive news on coal prices, but as everyone is already positioned for it, uh, the problem is that it's not uh, pushing uh, prices much higher. So the biggest risk we have in the near term is that we get some 
price correction further on gold prices, meaning lower towards at least 1400 uh, And then you, you only need a very small amount of uh, position liquidation uh, of all, of all the big positions we currently have in the market. So, so I would say near term there's quite some correction risk, and then 1400 is probably then easily reached. And then, um, yeah, for next year I'm more positive again, uh, expecting 1600 in the end of next year. So it's interesting. The uh, one of the things about commodities is people are trying to get a sense of where the dollar is. Is there any bear case out there for the U.S. dollar? Um, now, for commodities, especially for precious metals, the direction on the dollar is very important. It's in a way, yeah, an, a kind of a, a currency. Uh, most of the of the gold market is trading as a proxy currency. Uh, silver, by the way, as well. Um, and yeah, for, to see a very big move in gold prices higher, a lower dollar would be very welcome. Uh, this is not something we have seen this year. Dollar has done relatively well, gold prices as well. So there are more drivers than only the dollar, but the dollar is a crucial one. Uh, the other one is um, yeah, what the expectations are on the monetary policy front. Yeah. Um, and as well as how many uh, government bonds are yeah below zero. And currently, especially this year, gold got quite a boost on the fact that yeah, monetary policy moved towards easing. Uh, we talk about the Fed, but also ECB yeah. and other central banks. At the same time, you have quite a lot of government bonds yielding negative rates. And then gold with zero rate is attractive. So then it's not really the safe haven story, but more the risk yeah. return, which is, which is playing out here. George Epple, Paul Sweeney asking all those responsible adult <laughs> questions. I'm just going to weigh in here before the holiday season. When you see like fancy gold earrings, like the Tiffany Schlumberger rope six-row ear clips for $6,800. Wow. What's the markup of the gold there? I mean, you're a gemologist plus doing gold at ABN AMRO. What's the markup on jewelry and gold? Um, it very much depends on how much, what kind of jewelry piece it is. But I, overall, I would say, you know, there is quite a markup on that. Uh, as well, if you if you look at an, a jewelry piece and you calculate how much grams or uh, ounces is yeah. in there, and you know the market price, you roughly know uh, how much is yeah. uh, also designed. Because a lot on the jewelry side, there's also a lot of design in there, which, yeah, yeah. Consumers also pay for. See that, Paul? That's yep. news you can use. <laughs> exactly. I, can I, did, I just saw you. Did you George, think, you're a trooper, by the way. George, I think Tom just clicked, so that's now in his, in his cart here. So no, uh, that's <laughs> not in my cart. <laughs> All right. So, um, you know, energy. One of the things, just looking at um, oil, um, looking at Brent at sixty-two dollars a barrel. You know, there's a lot of questions here about demand, global demand. What is your view on global oil at this point? Um, we expect that uh, yeah, you have two major forces currently going on on the oil market. On the one end, uh, yeah, people are getting more uh, concerned about the global outlook, and therefore the demand expectations for oil um, are more towards the downside. At the same time, uh, we have experienced quite some uncertainty in the Middle East, and also there you get a bit more risk premium on oil price. So, and these two main factors, uh, yeah, keeping oil prices a bit. Yeah, relatively stable, no no strong directional move. So and and, and we don't have a strong directional move either on 
on oil prices. Um, so I would say yeah, around these levels and a bit higher. George Epple, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts on across a whole wide array of uh, wide array. The wide array. We didn't get the coffee or sugar or any of that kind of fun stuff. George Epple, ABN Amro, senior FX and uh, metal strategist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.